0: I first met today's guest in 1995. He was a college intern at the ad agency I was working at. We serviced movie studio clients at the time, and we ended up seeing several movies together that summer. The good, Braveheart. The not so good, Die Hard with a Vengeance. (laughs) On this, he and I are aligned. I like this kid immediately. We seem to have a lot in common, particularly in music and film. And While our careers follow different trajectories, I always watched his path from the sidelines, curious as to what he would ultimately choose to do. For someone who wanted to be a musician, he ended up carving himself one heck of a career in the luxury eyewear industry. Today, he's the chief creative officer of Morkenthal Fredericks and Robert Mark New York. He and his team are responsible for creating many of the amazing designs people wear on their faces. What a cool job. He also has impeccable fashion and design sense, and he appreciates good filmmaking. So let's get to know him. He's Jeff Press, and this is back by Popular Demand. (music) Jeff Press, welcome to the show. It's good to see you.
1: Good to see you.
0: When was the last time I saw you? I think it was... It was definitely New York, and I think it must have been maybe around 2015, 2016. I think we had a couple of whiskeys at Stone Rose Lounge at Time Warner Center. Does that I, sound right?
1: I think that is correct, and uh, and I think your time frame's uh, about right. I, I did a uh, transition from bourbon to scotch somewhere in there, and we were drinking bourbon. So uh, that's how I basically map out my life.
0: Wait, so let's stop right there. So you made a transition from bourbon to scotch shortly after that, it sounds like. What happened?
1: you know, here's the crazy thing. My father drank scotch my entire life. I literally never had a scotch with him because I hated the smell of it, all of it. And about two years after he passed away, I went out and uh, a friend of mine ordered some Macallan and didn't really tell me what it was. I said I liked whiskey. They ordered scotch. You know, I wasn't that specific. And I was like, whoa, this is pretty good. (laughs) Turns out- all of those Scottish people are not wrong. It's delicious. Now,
0: and now, that's, your, now that's your go-to now. So now, like.
1: now, yeah, that became my thing. I, I'm all Scotch, pretty much.
0: All right. So listen, um, I've got some housekeeping for you. Quick housekeeping. So normally, um, I select my intro music during post-production, usually after I do my, my recording session, um, and I figure out what kind of music I want to use for the intro after I do my, my cold open. But recognizing that you are a music guy... Um, and such things are important to discuss. I'm going to tell you now what your intro music is going to be. I chose Radiohead, which I thought it was a good call because I know you're a fan. I am. Um, and I'm choosing the song "Bones" from the record "The Bends."
1: Excellent. I'm I'm good with all Radiohead, and I love that song, so we're good.
0: Did you actually like? Do you know it by name, or do you know it by like track number? I think it's uh, like track four or something yeah, like that.
1: Four or five.
0: Yep, the Benz is my favorite Radiohead record, so um, that's why really? I decided to uh, yeah. And we can talk about that. I'm sure that's not your favorite, but um, I love the Benz. All right, well, let's uh, we're gonna get into that in a little bit. So we'll get back to that. Listen, it's really cool to have you on the show today. Um, what I love about our relationship is I've known you for quite a long time, but you and I have this this relationship where we'll just send each other random text. You sent me a text over the weekend asking me if I've watched um a certain series on Netflix. It's that show, the movies that made us. And I have, I have indeed watched that show. Um, and so it sounds like you came, came upon it recently and you've been catching up on some of the episodes. And for those that don't know the show, it's basically a behind the scenes on some of the most famous movies that were made. And um, a lot of these, a lot of factoids uh, in terms of how the show, how the movie was made, what went into it, um, maybe some things that you didn't really know. So the thing that seemed to have blown your mind is that you're watching the episode about Back to the Future and that Eric Stoltz was the original Marty McFly and that you didn't recognize that he uh, he had gotten tossed off the set what like 5 weeks into filming something like that.
1: That's what they said. Pretty crazy.
0: Um what do you what do you, what do you think about that show? Let's let's talk about it for a second.
1: So uh you know, I I love documentaries and I love hearing backstories. So I was totally drawn to the idea. Um, I'm not 100% sure why they went so quirky and felt they had to dress it up. I mean, The stories themselves are pretty compelling, so I didn't necessarily need like the British comedian to throw in his uh, sort of uh, pithy uh, lines. I just wanted to kind of hear the story, so um, I was interested by the content, but I didn't really fully understand the uh, the form.
0: I can't. um, I remember season one, and this was a while ago. I think season one was probably a good year or so ago, and I don't remember the movies they did except I know they did Die Hard.
1: I did see Die Hard.
0: I thought like it was a perfectly fine first season. And then when I came across season two recently, I started watching, um, there were a couple of Back to the Future, and I watched the one about Forrest Gump. And it seems like the second season has been done by some sort of studio committee over at Netflix, where they had a lot of notes about season one, and they just wanted to change things up. And they added this whole narrator that's got like some sort of accent and... It's just it's too lighthearted and and goofy and like it's trying too hard. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah,
1: I like I don't get it at all. I watched Die Hard and Ghostbusters from the first okay. season, and then yep. I watched Forrest Gump and Back to the Future as well. And like Die Hard and Ghostbusters, yeah. I don't know if somebody decided that the content wasn't interesting enough, so for season two they had to you know spice it up with some comedy. But uh, I was fine with the content, and I didn't understand what was going on in the second season at all cause this guy's making jokes and I'm like, <laughs> I just kind of want to know what's going on here.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll keep watching it obviously. Cause I'm yeah. stupid and you know, why, why won't I? Um, but still I'm not really enjoying it, but it's one of those guilty pleasures. Staying on TV for a minute. I want to talk about Bobby Flay. Uh, I know you're a foodie. You, you and I are friends on social media. You, you tend to post some, some really amazing photos of some of the various delicacies that you embark on in, in New York and on a lot of your global travels. Cause I know you travel a lot for your job or at least yep. you used to. Yeah. Um, I recently made a post on Facebook like a month ago that I have, I think right now, 116 episodes of Beat Bobby Flay on my DVR. Um, I think I have a problem. (laughs) And you replied. I think you were the first person to reply and said something like, you've seen every single episode of that show.
1: Yeah. I got to tell you, I love it. Like I love a lot of cooking shows. But what's great about this show is he's so interesting to me. The guy is, he's literally, he's a magician. Like, no matter what they throw at him, he's pretty good. And, I mean, there's dishes where he's like, yeah, I've never made that. And you know it's going to taste good. Like, I don't know if he's going to win at some, like, Chinese dish that he's never heard of before, but I know it's going to taste good because he just makes things taste good. And the way he goes about it is so sort of masterful because he's always just about, like, you know what? I'm going to develop flavors, and either it's going to be traditional or it's not. And you watch these non real professional competition chefs. And I love it when they say things like, I'm going to make scallops four ways, or I'm going to like, don't do that. Or I'm going to make my own pasta. Yeah, don't do that. He's not going to do that. He knows this is competitive cooking. He's just going to make great flavors happen. So I love the way he almost, it's like he is a master.
0: He knows what his talents are. He knows what he's capable of doing. And I feel like as a viewer, I get manipulated when I watch that show, because they want you to think that Bobby doesn't know how to make a dish. And then, you know, the right. other person does. And then, you know, to your point, though, Bobby, has he's a master of, of flavor profile. He just always knows how to bring the flavors. So even if he does the dish a little bit differently than maybe the way it's traditionally done, he always delivers. Yeah. And oftentimes he ends up winning that episode.
1: <laughs> that's why I always respect the people who go right at him. And they're like, we're going to make, you know, like roasted chicken. Like, you know, that's right in his wheelhouse. Or we're going to make huevos rancheros. They're going for it. Like, the person who comes in and gives him a dish he's never heard of before, I find those episodes to be interesting. But uh, when they win, I'm always like, okay.
0: Have you ever met Bobby Fly?"
1: You know, I haven't. He He's actually been a client, um, but I've never personally met him. Um, and to be honest, I'd like him to be a client again because I think there's some, some good opportunities there. Um, and I always like to... Uh, big opportunities to outfit uh, people. Well, I'll
0: tell you what, you can t- you can send him the link to this episode when it's done and, and tell him that we just gave him a lot of love and that he should That's become right. a client for you again. So we're already, we're already kind of starting to connect the dots for you, Jeff. So listen, you and I met in uh, 1995, I think. Um, I, I was only a couple of years out of school. I was working at a, a an agency in DC called Abramson Ehrlich Mains, AEM, um, small agency that was led by uh, David Abramson, who at the time was sort of a, kind of an icon in Washington, DC, a big ad guy. Uh, He's no longer with us, but certainly was a big name at the time. Um, Our agency handled a variety of clients, but I worked in the entertainment division, which was at the end of this long hallway. And uh, we did uh, media and PR for a variety of of film studio clients. At the time, we handled Paramount Pictures. We did 20th Century Fox, MGM, a couple of others. Uh, You were an intern for us that summer, were you not?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, for a summer and a semester, actually.
0: Okay. And you were um, you were University of Maryland like I was, right? Yep. That's what I thought. So I think that was probably one of the reasons you and I hit it off right away. Because in my role, I was still the low man on the totem pole. So a lot of times, the low guy had to deal with the interns a lot. So you and I would, would cross paths quite a bit and um, have a few immediate memories of that time together. And I know you know what I'm about to sort of get into. But the one of them that stood out to me first, as I was thinking about this the other day, I think this was you and and I hope it was, and I'm not wrong on this, but you had a friend that worked for a record label. And I remember that you would this guy would hook you up with a bunch of promo CDs that, you know, that were I guess like the CDs that get sent to DJs and stuff before they get released to the general public. And usually they have like a hole punch in the top corner of the of the case, and that's what that's why you know that they're kind of a promo. And I think this was you, but you you came into me one day and you're like, Listen, I have a CD that I need you to listen to. I need you to listen to it tonight and (laughs) you you need to come back to me tomorrow and, and report on it and give me your, and your take. But he's like, this CD will blow your mind. It is a phenomenal recording. And I'm like, and after you said all that to me, I was like, all right, I'm in. So, um, the album was, it was Oasis and it was, what's the story morning glory, which I think was just about to come out. Do you remember this at all?
1: I do. I do. And, uh, and I was right, by the way, that album's pretty darn good.
0: You were right. I was actually just going to say, I, I, I think, um, you absolutely knew what you are talking about. I, I went home that night. I listened to it. I think I might've even listened to it twice. And I mean, sure as hell, like I think within just a matter of matter of weeks, um, certainly by the end of that summer, that album was all that you heard on, yeah. on WHFS, the, uh, the alternative station in DC at the time, but they, they played Oasis just every, every 20 minutes, it seemed like, right.
1: Oh yeah. That album blew up. And, and it, I had a friend, uh, who was at BMG at the time. And I ended up after Abramson, I was an intern at Sony music. So then I was the guy getting CDs uh, as well. So uh, I don't
0: know if I remembered that. Was that, was that in New York?
1: I uh, know down in, uh, down in Maryland. Um still there. Okay. After I did um, the semester with Abramson, I went and did a semester at Sony music.
0: Got it. Which internship was better?
1: Um, you know, they were both, Excellent in their own way, but I got a lot of free music. I did see Braveheart <laughs> before it came out, though, and I got to tell you, that's life changing stuff. So, uh, so they I, all have. I, I
0: actually I remember that because we worked on Braveheart that summer. It was it came out in '95, and oftentimes we would go to the MPAA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America, which is based in DC, and it was a just a couple blocks from our office at the time. And and a lot of times we would see these screenings, you know, at ten in the morning. Um, they call them exhibitor screenings. And this was even before the press got to see the movie. It was really for the theater owners. And yeah. and you and me and, and all of the people that we worked with in the department would all go. And so I think we saw Braveheart together for the he three did. hours and and probably grabbed lunch afterwards and talked about how how amazing. I think we also saw, I want to say, Die Hard 3 that summer.
1: I think that is correct. Yeah. Not my favorite yeah. of the Die Hard series, no, but, not, uh, but pretty good.
0: Not my favorite either. So there was a funny thing that happened that summer when you, were, you and I were interning. Um, it's the David Abramson story. Um, you knew that I would bring this up. So he was often walking around the halls and he would just pop in different people's offices and say hello. But he really liked the entertainment division. It was kind of one of those departments that had a, a special place for him and in his heart. And I think it was, I hate to say this, but... A lot of cute women were in our department at the time. Uh, all the women that ran the department were easy on the eyes, as my dad would say. And uh, he liked to come down there and chat and flirt and, and do all that sort of stuff. So I remember one day um, he came into the back room and you were back there with me. We were doing something or other. And he uh, he didn't like what you were wearing that day. And he came up to you and he's like, I, 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 and again, I, I don't know exactly how this went down, but he said something like, you know, what's your name? And you're like, my name is Jeff. And he's like, Jeff, um, I, you know, you can either go home and get changed or not come back.
1: <laughs> that is do you a remember true this? story. I do remember. It. I remember it clearly. It's not the last time somebody thought I was wearing something that uh, that didn't fit in. But uh, I do remember him coming down and saying it. And uh, and he was totally serious. Like when he first said it, I remember being like, is, is he messing with me? He was not messing with me.
0: He was not messing with you and I was actually I was blown away like I had never seen that I'm 24 years old or whatever and I've never seen anything like that before. David was kind of an intense guy so I'm I'm one of his employees so I'm obviously sort of nervous around him still and and for him to do that first of all you weren't even dressed inappropriately. I think I don't really remember at the time what you wore but certainly didn't feel like it was inappropriate. I've seen some outfits that you wear now because <laughs> I know you and fashion's a big thing for you which we're going to get into and that I get. But certainly um, at the time in 1995, I felt like it was a it was a a hard it was a hard thing to him to put you through. But I tell you what, Jeff Press, you you went home and you got changed and you actually came back. And that that says a lot about about you and about your character. I was impressed.
1: Yeah. uh, uh, You know, um, I remember that day and I went back um, to my apartment and I remember calling my dad. And I was like, "This guy just sent me home." He's like, "What are you wearing?" I'm like, "I'm just wearing what I wear." Like it wasn't even out there at all. I mean, I don't exactly recall, but I didn't dress all that uh, differently then. And my father said, "So I guess you better change and go back to work." And so, uh, so I changed and went back to work.
0: Were you? Uh, but were you pissed off?
1: I definitely, um, yeah, I definitely wasn't uh, psyched about the event. The thing is, I mean, he was the boss. It wasn't even like, oh, this is like some junior level guy who was above us. We we were real young. This the guy's name is on the door. So, uh, so yeah, I got the, I got dressed and turned around and came back.
0: Yeah, but I I felt like it was kind of a, you know, listen, it's media agencies, ad agencies. There's usually a a pretty casual vibe, at least least now, maybe back then, not as much. It was maybe a little bit more formal back then, but we also worked in entertainment. I sort of felt like um, you probably should have gotten a free pass there. But that's, uh, you know, listen, it's one of those things that stayed with me for some reason, because when I started coming up with what I wanted to talk to you about, that that story popped in my head. I'm like, I got to talk about this with Jeff. Because you and yeah. I never really talk about it after the fact.
1: <laughs> it's true. I got to say, um, you know, I, I have had plenty of people who have worked for me over the years. And sometimes I don't even care for the way they're dressed. I've never actually sent someone home in that manner. Although I will admit, and this is true because we, I have a bunch of stores. I have gone and purchased clothing for somebody on a sales floor and told them that they had to change. Are you serious? But that is a true story. But usually it's a tie because we had a rule about ties. So I would go buy them a tie and be like, you're not wearing a tie and you have to. So here you go. Wow. And I think they're always sort of taken back, but I wasn't a jerk about it. I just was like, hey, listen, well, maybe I was a little bit of a jerk about it, but in a nice way. Um, he was definitely harsh that day. And I, and I got to say, I'm a 21 year old intern or whatever it was. And I was like, okay, this guy's pretty serious.
0: guy, yeah, the guy got all of our attention. He certainly got my attention. I think the, the last thing I remember about you and I that summer um, is we, we ate a lot of lunch together, and I felt, I felt like you and I would go down to Arthur Treachers like once or twice a week and, and get food that we probably should't have been eating. and I can't even imagine that there wasn't Arthur Treacher's near our office, but there was, and we would we would get you know some fried food and and then I remember buying bootleg VHS tapes with you. Um, so this is back in the day, this is obviously pre DVD. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're, if you were lucky, you would see some sort of vendor that would be, you know, camped out on the sidewalk near our office. And he would sell a bunch of videotapes of movies that were still in the theater. And I think I, at the time, um, want to say that we bought a, a, uh, a Screener of pulp fiction way before pulp had even come out officially, yeah. on video and uh, terrible quality, Jeff. <laughs> it was, it was horrible.
1: There was some guy in the back of the room with a camera video taking right? the screen. It was like
0: it was like Kramer from Seinfeld when he was, oh, yeah. when he it was, was doing horrible. bootlegs. And I watched the yeah. crap
1: out of that video, by the way. I watched, I, it did, like I did too, so because much. it
0: was the only only way I could watch pulp fiction at the time because it was it was out of theaters but it wasn't on video yet so we, we bought it for five bucks or whatever it was yeah. and at the time it felt like it was the right decision but probably not really in the long term of things so let's talk let's pivot let's talk a little bit about your profession you, you just kind of referenced it a little bit um, you are chief creative officer for luxury optical holdings which includes Morgenthau Fredericks and Robert mark New York City uh, fashion eyewear to so tell me a little bit more about um, the company and the job itself
1: sure so uh, so I designed the eyewear for uh, Morgenthal Fredericks and for Robert Mark and we do a bunch of collaborations with different fashion brands Oscar De la Renta and monse and and different uh, collaborations with industry brands as well we have uh, 34 stores around the country um, and they're all you know real high-end eyewear stores so I specialize in specialty materials so I work a lot with Buffalo Horn um, it's actually what Morgenthau is most known for, but also with uh, acetate and titanium. And uh, you know, we make prescription and sunglasses, and have great stores in, in new, all the places you'd expect—New York and, and Beverly Hills, and Miami, and Chicago, and Aspen, and and great places around the country. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's fun. I, I get to uh, oversee all of the creative and the marketing, as well as the design of the product. And we uh, we make frames in uh, Germany and in uh, Japan, mostly some in France um, and get to work with uh, really talented people. And, you know, it's fun. Um, It all happens sort of by chance, but uh, definitely uh, a nice creative outlet.
0: So are you leading the creative for the brand itself as well, obviously, as what you just said, the design of the actual frames? So it's both.
1: Yeah. So both both design and creative. So I have a team on the design side, on the product design uh, side, and also one on the creative side. Um, So we get to do some really uh, fun and interesting stuff um, in both areas, um, which has been nice. Um, I've been with Morgenthau for a very long time. I took over Robert Mark in uh, 2018. Uh, Ironically, I had started in the industry for Robert Mark as a salesperson, and then uh, went over to Morgenthau in 1998, and uh, just in sales, because I moved to New York to be a musician and uh, just sort of grew up through the process. Uh, Mr. Morgenthau was this awesome guy who was very open about, hey, you got ideas? Let's hear your ideas. So uh, I went from sales to buying. And then I said, I had some design ideas. And he's like, okay, I'll introduce you to the factory guys. And he literally took me to these meetings and let me meet these guys and let me start to sample product. And it was, to be honest, it's really crazy as I think about it, because very few people are that open. Um, I was 24, 25 years old at the time. Very few people are that open to say, "Hey, you know, you got ideas? Uh, let's let's hear them." Um, and he was, and so I got to learn on the job, which was awesome.
0: I'm so glad you just told me this because I didn't know that's how you got into it. I was that was one of my questions for you: is how did you get into this? Because I, when I knew you back then, that was not something well, I. I I remember I remember you telling me that you wanted to be a musician. I obviously knew that part about you. So I ne- ne- never knew how you entered that world. So that's how it
1: started. It is. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I remember I, uh, I got offered two jobs the same day. When I first moved to New York, I was sleeping on uh, my sister's floor. And uh, I went and I interviewed at Yoji Yamamoto, the clothing store, and at Robert Mark, the eyeglass store. And I really wanted the job at Yoji Yamamoto. Um, to this day, my favorite designer and I was, like, really into Japanese design, and I still am. Um, but the job at Robert Mark was available four weeks earlier. And so I, I took the job because I didn't really wow. want to sleep on my sister's floor for too long, and I had just found an apartment. And on the first day at work, I remember going to a payphone, which shows you how old I am, and I called my father and I said, yeah, you get a free pair of glasses after three months, but I'm not going to be here three months. I'm going to take that other job in four weeks. And yeah. that, uh, that was 25 years ago as of uh, August 8th. So um, I got, I got the free glasses. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so pretty crazy. It just sort of happened that way. And um,
0: that doesn't really happen very often, Jeff. That's not the way it works. Usually that's so, so random, right?
1: It, it really is. I, you know, what's so funny is I took a job in an eyeglass store because I was really serious about music. So I didn't want to work for Sony music. Because I wanted to be a musician, so I turned down a job with Sony Music when I first moved to New York to not do that, so I could be a serious musician. Here I am, years later. I'm not a professional musician, and I got quite serious about the not serious job that I took. It's uh, all came full circle. But uh, but the nice thing about it was, you know, I wanted to to make things. I thought I wanted to make music, and, and I really liked that too. But I wanted to make and create things, and so eyewear gave me an opportunity to do that. And once I got really um, interested in it, and you see the small sort of intricate details of it, um, and the beauty, the one thing that I love so much about it, is this idea of form and function coming together. There's a real use for eyewear. People feel really insecure often about eyewear. And if you make it beautiful and comfortable and look great, then it really flips that over. And I uh, I love that part of it. I like really uh, I, I I like the idea of taking form and function and putting them together in that way and making a tactile product that people really depend on, not just to see, but To shape their entire appearance. Do you feel
0: like you always had those creative and design instincts inside you, or like was it always there, and you just needed something to kind of help you harness it? Like, how did that come about?
1: You know, I I I definitely felt like I was going to do something uh, in creative. I was at, at Maryland, and I was a journalism major. And freshman year, I started writing some some papers for a class that I was taking. And I remember I had this professor who I didn't like very much who said, you're way too creative to be a journalist. Journalists are supposed to write accurately about what they see. And you keep trying to like write something that you find to be interesting and creative. So I didn't know if I'd be a writer or a musician or, or what it might be, but I knew I wanted to make something. I, I think uh, the line I usually say is that uh, somewhere in there, I flipped from wanting to write and think about other people's lives to wanting to create stuff in my own. Um, and, uh, and I think that's right. It turned out to be eyewear. I mean, could it have been clothing or could it have been jewelry or something like that? Maybe had the situation been different, but I thought eyewear gave me a really great out, outlet to do it. And the beauty of it was I really joined the eyewear industry while it was starting to boom. Um, if you think about where eyewear was in the 70s and the 80s, it was really, uh, you know, kind of tough out there. If you had glasses, there were not good choices for me as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, there were not good choices. But there was a um, there was an explosion, really a revolution in Iwear in the late 80s and into the 90s with brands like Oliver Peoples and Alan Mickley um, and, and Mr. Morgenthal and Robert Mark. And it changed everything. So it was even as I joined in the mid-90s, it was kind of a young thing to do because there was so much opportunity for eyewear. Uh, to expand and really explode. And now it's an unbelievably giant market where people are really creative. I
0: well, saw so it. you just reminded me of something. So I remember, and obviously you know for so much more about this business than I do, but I feel like from my perspective, it was like, I guess it was early 2000s. I was in New York City and I think at the time, coming out of the 90s, everybody was still sort of wearing the rounded frames, right? Like they were yeah. kind of like, they're not the frames that you and I are wearing right now where I, nobody can see us, But um, but I remember... I was I really hated the round frames. I was tired of them. And I, I was walking down Third Avenue one day. It was, it was um, in the, like the upper 70s, somewhere on the, on the east side. And I, I was looking for new glasses. And I went into this eyeglass place. And I saw a pair of frames that were black, very similar to what I'm wearing now. I mean, not nearly as bold as what you're wearing, but certainly kind of like, you know, at the time, it felt like these were not glasses that people wore. And they were, you know, everybody was still sort of wearing the rounded ones. And when I got these, I bought them and I I tried them on. And I was like, this just, these felt very, as I think I told you, they felt like um, the kind of frames that George McFly wore in Back to the Future, which is the second time we're mentioning Back to the Future tonight. And um, they just felt like, they just felt like they belonged with me at that moment in time. And I, I felt like I was the first kid on the block that had, these kinds of style, what, what style of these are that I'm wearing right now? What are they, what are they known as?
1: So like, uh, I mean, I guess traditionally they'd be called like a horn rimmed pair, like a thick horn rimmed pair. Um, but definitely retro in style and, uh, thicker gauge acetate, uh, piece. Um, and definitely, uh, it, it was you were on you were on the edge of something because uh, through the early and mid 90s, <laughs> it was a lot of metal frames. It was a lot of rimless frames. People were really um, were really into um, hiding their eyewear. Um, and what happened as we got into the later 90s is eyewear got bolder and became more of an accessory um, and people were much more um, willing to show uh, their eyewear in a prominent way. So you were, you were at the, uh, you were at the forefront of, uh, of a transition.
0: It really, it really did take off after that, which had nothing to do with me clearly. But, uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. Like I felt like I was like, and I felt the same thing when I got my, my DVR, I was time Warner cable, in New York city. I got my DVR when I first heard about it. I was like, man, there's a thing that you can actually pause live TV and record shows without, without having a VCR. I'm in, sign yeah. me up. And I remember, like I was like, the, out of all my friends, I felt like I had the DDr like eight, eight or nine months before everybody else did. And I just kept talking about how I was uh, recording every episode of Seinfeld and every episode of Pardon the Interruption. And I would watch it after work. And um, so that's how I felt about the eyeglasses. Like I felt like I was, I was the first guy to get them. And then all of a sudden, the whole industry came up. Anyway, I'm joking. So, Tom, in your role, is it? Is there is there a focus of, of continuing to create new new designs and new frames, or is it more about making sure that you're, you're you're manufacturing what people want?
1: It's a combination of things. I mean, the one thing I'll say, you know, eyewear is small, so you're working with something that has to fit the face. Um, so there are there are guardrails, and those natural guardrails, I think, are are a good thing to be honest with you, because it creates a certain structure. Um, so we have a much longer timeline with eyewear than say a fashion designer does where something comes out in spring and it's gone by fall and it um, it gives you an opportunity to continue to recreate things um, that work really well but also to make new styles happen so um, so you know we make anywhere from 20 to 25 new styles a year And then we also add colors and keep our best sellers constant for long periods of time. What I like to try and do and what I've sort of um, specialized in in my career is working with materials that are really special and unique. So we do a lot with buffalo horn that that does um, evolve what has happened with materials before. So I use with stone, I use wood, but mostly buffalo horn to create new techniques with a really unique material. And I love doing that because the nice thing about horn is that um, horn is both um, really lightweight and comfortable, but really beautiful. Um, So each piece is one of a kind because it's a natural material. So I really enjoy that. Um, But I would say uh, it's a combination of continuing with existing styles that obviously drive the market but trying to continue to evolve also. So for instance, um, with, with Robert Mark, we specialize in different color acetates. And so we stay in a fairly classic shape range, but we definitely like to play with materials and show different colors. And so that's always fun um, to do that. And each brand has its own identity in and of itself. So where Morgenthau is a really eclectic brand, where we go much sort of further on the design side Robert Mark is a more um, modern but classic brand. So shapes stay more in a a range, um, and then we do it with color and material. Um, And and to be honest, it's an interesting thing, but I I enjoy all of it. Um, What I like to do is see what's right about the brand and then how you can tell stories within the brand. Um, so my um, viewpoint when we're designing Morgenthau Fredericks or when we're designing Monse especially or, you know, which is really eclectic or Oscar de la Renta, which is pretty eclectic, is very different from when I'm thinking about Robert Mark, where it's much more about classic silhouettes and choosing great colors that make a lot of sense.
0: So what is it like to when you design, you know, new frames? Um, how How many like iterations are you going through before one actually finally gets the green light and gets manufactured? So, I, mean, I can't even imagine how many like fall on fall in the trash.
1: You know, it's an interesting thing. So I, I a designer on my team, her name is Ria, and she changed my entire perspective of how this world of design works. Um, three years ago, she graduated from Rhode Island School of Design, and she brought all the technical skills. I mean, she's super talented and super smart, but she brought all these technical skills. And here I am, old, working, you know, with sticks and stones. I'm just doing, you know, some, some drawings, and I'm drawing arrows and explaining to the factory how this is supposed to work. And all of a sudden, we're doing 3D renders and 3D modeling, and, you know, it's a whole new world, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I say to her all the time, I'm like, you can't worry about the frames that don't make it. Because we're going to design, you know, 20 frames for every frame we make. And some of them, you're going to go back and say, oh, how did that not make it? That's, that was so good. And a bunch of them, you're going to go back and say, good thing that didn't make it. That thing would have been a dog. Um, but I, I guess, and I, and I say this a lot, after this many years and this many collections, so for Morgenthau, I've been the, the head designer there since 2006. So I've made a lot of, a lot of frames and a lot of collections. I try not to get emotional about the individual frame and I try and think about the full collection and the full brand story because um, it's much – It's much. Um, you can get lost in an individual frame. But I will tell you, many frames just don't make it. Um, there's, there is a real back and forth on the beginning with concept and drawing, going to the rendering process, getting first samples. And sometimes that can take 10 or 12 months and you realize – yep, this isn't going to make it. And you just have to kind of be okay with that. Otherwise, you'll get too emotionally involved in each frame. And that's actually not a good process. Um, You have to be able to edit yourself.
0: I got to ask you, I hope you don't mind me asking you this. How many frames do you have personally?
1: I have a lot of frames. I'm going to say, so the first thing I would say is I probably have um, between me and my wife, and she has a lot. And to be honest. I use I put her prescription in all of my frames so this way she can wear my frames our prescriptions are super close that is, a what a, that, what a is husband. Not, that is not medically recommended but um, it's a very basic prescription and it's mostly for reading um, so we probably have 150 pairs with um, a prescription that I can use um, yeah. but then I have a lot of sunglasses and other frames and it is it often happens that people come over and they're like looking through a draw being like, oh, my God, look at all these frames. And they pick one up and they're like, this is awesome. And I'm like, all right, you know, take it. And they're like, take it. And I'm like, it's OK. Like, it doesn't even have my prescription. You can take it. So people like to come over because, as it turns out, nobody wants a bottle of wine for me. Like, sure. nobody's psyched about getting a bottle of wine for me. They all just pretty much want sunglasses or whatever. So uh, so probably I'm guessing 150 pairs, but I, I've never really counted or not in any systematic way.
0: Well, Jeff, I'm going to be, uh, I'm in New York next week, Monday and Tuesday, so I will swing by and, you should. You know, I'll just lay out a couple that I yeah, can take. I'll be I'll honest take, with you I, owe you.
1: I owe you glasses. I've said it to you before, and it is not that I don't want to give you glasses. It's just that I, um, my follow through on that is not always ideal. So stop by and, and I promise you, you will leave with something nice.
0: It's all good. I actually like the ones you're wearing quite a bit. Those are those are great. I, it's funny. I I was going to reference this later, but the um one of the highlights of Instagram for me, uh, you know, I'm I'm more of an Instagram guy than I'm a Facebook person. I used to be on Facebook a lot, but I've I've kind of cut back. But I really like Instagram just for its its visual appeal. And but I'm friends with you there, and I you know you and your family. You have a wonderful family. I know how much you care about your wife and your daughter, and. And like you guys just have amazing photos and like you're always decked out and your outfits are incredible and your design sense is amazing and you're always wearing your eyewear. And I mean, I feel like every time I see a picture of you and your family, like you guys have different frames on. So it's always one of those one of the 150 that you've got. But um I just thought I, I've never really told you that, but I just I just think it's cool. Like I love seeing. Um, just the, the, just the variety of stuff that you wear. It's, it's really impressive. I wish my, our listeners could, can see what I'm talking about because it's, it's really impressive.
1: I have to say to that people say to me a lot that you can wear, oh, you can wear so many different things. And I usually say this as it pertains to Iwear. Um, I usually say you can wear lots of different things too. The issue is we all sort of get stuck in this idea that this is the one that works And um, obviously this is what I do. So I'm constantly putting frames on, but I know that lots of things work and it's just a matter of feeling comfortable with it. And that comfort and confidence makes it so that you think people can wear a lot more than you might otherwise think. So, so I appreciate that. I do, I do, I I must say, I do like the idea that every photo we look like a different group. Um, I always thought that was very interesting. So uh, that is not, that is not unintentional.
0: A couple more business questions for you, and then we'll we'll take a quick break. But sure. from a business perspective, with with you know with Morgenthal and Robert Mark, is the goal? I mean, you know, obviously this, this past year, the pandemic has caused a lot of problems for many biz- businesses. Um, a lot of brick and mortar stores, you know, are not seeing the traffic that they're used to seeing, and some of them have closed down. For you, is it still driving you know retail traffic to these thirty four locations that you guys got? Is that the priority, or is it more of a digital um, execution now where people can buy the things online? Because I see all these ads on yeah. social media now for buying, I'm sure they're knockoffs for these, you know, eyewear that you can get fairly inexpensively if you buy them online. And I don't like doing that, but talk to me a little bit about that dynamic right now.
1: It would be foolish to say that we haven't seen a shift in the fact that there's more eyewear online, but we believe. You know, very much in the idea that the personalized service and optician matters in both selecting the right frames, but also putting the right prescription in. You know, your eyewear does have to assist you in seeing, and that's the most important sense there is. So, um, in person still drives the majority of our business, though we look at online as a growing business. And the way we would want to do that and the way we will do that is to make sure we're doing it in a service oriented and optician-led way so that it's still a professional encounter. Um, We're not inexpensive. Our eyewear is not inexpensive. It's, you know, really um, phenomenally well-made and it should be serviced by professional opticians. And so for us, and this is sort of unique, I mean, obviously COVID wasn't good the first few months. Stores were closed and no one was prepared for it. uh, And that includes us. But since uh, stores have been reopened, and people are on Zoom or FaceTime or Skype all the time, um, eyewear is even more important. I mean, the reality is I may not know what kind of watch you're wearing or if you're wearing pants, but I know that you're wearing glasses, and I can see them prominently. And, uh, and that's been a huge thing. So to be honest, as it pertains to 2021, it's been a great year from a business perspective because I think where people are not necessarily buying a lot of fashion items Eyewear is an item that is both functional and style-driven. And if we're in meetings or if we're in conversations like this, really, this is the accessory. This is the only thing you see, um, and um, it's important that you see well. Um, So what we've seen is a lot of change in terms of the advent of blue light protection to protect your eyes from the increased screen time. We've seen office lenses. These are lenses that are for computer use. Um, they've increased like crazy. They've just blown up because people are realizing that when you sit at a computer for eight, 10 hours and you have to pay attention one-on-one to a conversation with someone that it's important that you see well and that you're comfortable. So it's been a, um, it's been a really, um, an evolutionary year for the eyewear industry. Um, It's not so much that sunglass sales are blowing up or anything like that. Although sunglass sales are fine. It's really about the optical uses and as we've seen that work, um, so, so it's been an interesting, uh, an interesting year in that regard. And I would say digital will become a bigger part in the IR industry. But in terms of the high-end portion of the market, that opticianry and the need for a good optometrist or a good ophthalmologist to give you a great uh, prescription is so important that it's still going to be really about how does that transition occur. Because you can buy Warby Parkers online because you're paying $99 or whatever you're paying, and you're not paying for quality. That's not the point. Um, you're paying for expedience. Um, but, uh, but if you want to buy really great eyewear and see really well and be really comfortable, um, there's a professionalism that comes with that. So I think... The um, goal, even as we do more online and we do more online than we did in the past, will be how do we do that in a way so that our clients are still getting service at the highest level and getting all of the professional things they need so that they see exceptionally well.
0: You have my word that I've never bought a Warby Parker pair because I know you told me in the past, please don't buy.
1: (laughs) Hey, look, they are they are a marketing machine. And quite frankly, and I do mean this. They have made it clear to people that eyewear matters, and that's yep. right. Now, I think you should buy the right eyewear, um, so that's where we differ, but the need for multiple pairs of eyewear and the need to have uh, eyewear with your current prescription, that matters, and uh, their marketing machine has gotten that message out there in a pretty meaningful way.
0: All right, Jeff, we're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to pivot into some pop culture. Sounds good. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by The Waffle Company the first ever get-and-give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. That just makes me smile. Those who know me will tell you how much I respect Animal Rescue, and I adore my two boxer rescues, Sammy and Gabby, and trust me when I say that they love their waffle bed. My dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived. Whether I'm watching a favorite movie, a baseball game, or listening to music, one of them is always lounging on their waffle gnawing away on their favorite shark chew toy. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure k cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. It looks brand new every time I wash it. Look, you love your dogs, I sure love mine, and we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them, so get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night. And that should make you sleep better at night. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. And as a thank you to listening to this podcast, be sure to use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount on your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. As I mentioned at the Open, Jeff, you're a big music guy. Um, you wanted to be a musician. Didn't work out, but um, you're in another creative field, which you seem at total peace with, which I'm really happy about. Who are you listening to these days? Like, Give, give me a few bands that are, are, are in Jeff's you know, Spotify.
1: So i have an eight-year-old daughter, so I'm listening to a lot of things I'd like to not be listening to. So <laughs> I'll put that right out of the way, that when my Spotify most played songs of the year list comes up, it is not me. I just want to say it's not me. But uh, but I've actually, um, interestingly, a lot of uh, recommendations have come my way this year on things that I didn't know before that are really amazing. So um, I don't know if you know Songs Ohio, um, but uh, Magnolia Electric Company, that album, which is unbelievable. Unfortunately, uh, Jason, uh, the force behind that uh, that band, passed away. But Unbelievable, and uh, and that's been something I've been going to a lot. Um, I just saw Wilco the other night, which is my first Here's concert here. in uh, since uh, since last January. I saw them in a horrendous rainstorm at Forest Hill Stadium on Saturday, and I love Wilco, so I, I listen to a lot of Wilco. Um, yep. That's sort of my country alt side, and then um, Radiohead's my favorite band, and I listen a ton to tons of Radiohead and White Stripes. Um, Those are my typical standards. Um, But one thing that I've been listening to a lot, and I just missed her for like 20 years. I had friends who would be like, how are you not a huge P.J. Harvey fan? I know what you listen to. And how are you not a huge P.J. Harvey fan? And so over the course of like the last three or four months, I've just been listening to a ton of P.J. Harvey.
0: Funny, uh, uh, Jeff Tweedy was the last concert I had seen right before the pandemic. I, I caught him in D.C. He was doing a solo tour. Um, and it was shortly before I moved to LA officially. So it was yeah. one of like the last things I did in DC before I left. And I just walked over one night. He was playing, and I saw him um, phenomenal. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Jeff Tweedy and and Wilco. And but it's funny that you just he they're they're the first show you've seen since the pandemic, and that was the last one I saw before the pandemic. It, it, so. it
1: is, and and I have to say, it was it was a crazy rainstorm. <laughs> like I guess it rained like two inches. We were under a tree in Queens, and I was like yeah, I still kind of feel like it's worth it. Um, so that's a good show.
0: You posted something on Instagram the other day about, I think it was about David Bowie um, and w- one of his albums and how meaningful it is to you. And we all have a few. So tell me like, and this is probably a conversation we really need to be having over over the scotch, apparently. Um, but give me a give me a couple of your, as a musician and someone that loves music, give me a couple of your Desert Island records. I'm not going to have you do all five because I know that's what everybody always says. Give me your top five, but give, give me a couple. Like what's, what's yeah. high on the list for you?
1: So Ogun Computer is my favorite Radiohead album and is also my favorite album. So I
0: had a feeling it was that. Yeah.
1: Um, so I, I, mean, I like a lot of Radiohead, but that's my favorite. Um, and I listen to tons of White Stripes. So any of their first five albums would be just fine. Um, yeah. And I just, I was just talking about this. Neil Young live at Massey Hall, um, which is a recording from 1971. It's so good. Um but uh, again, that, that whole straddling of uh, alternative rock and some country alternative feel. Um, I've also been listening to Rage Against the Machine a lot, the first album. So uh, those are, those are pretty good ones to take with um, and, uh, you know, cover, uh, cover a bunch of bases. So you and I
0: text each other quite a bit about film, which is really kind of what I think brought you and I together because we were working on movie campaigns back in the day. So um, our relationship has certainly been defined in many ways by, by film. Um, you and I tend to talk a lot about certain filmmakers like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, P.T. Anderson, uh, Quentin, obviously, and the Coen brothers. So I want—I don't think I've ever asked you this before. What is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film?
1: The best Paul Thomas Anderson film is There Will Be Blood. Okay. That's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film is Boogie Nuts. That's fair. I think Boogie Nights, and and I will say, if you make a top ten list, Heather Graham as Roller Girl is all ten. So I I mean, I just remember seeing Boogie Nights and being like, this movie, like um, it was just it blew me away how um, interesting and how great that movie was. Um, The reason I say There Will Be Blood is better is because the end of Boogie Nights sort of falls off quite a bit, but the first hour plus of that movie you're like totally engaged and it's, it's just, it's a, uh, it's like a Pulp Fiction good time. Um, it definitely yeah. falls off at the end. Um, but you know, where there will be blood doesn't fall off at all. Um, I, yeah, I mean, like Boogie Nights better.
0: Boogie Nights is when, when Boogie Nights hits its, hits its stride in the first half of that film, I know what you mean. It's sort of exhilarating. I mean, it, it, it takes you, it thrusts you into this world. You You don't really, never been in and it's it's relentless in and all the right ways and it's just like but i agree with you the last probably the last half an hour it sort of falls off a little bit and the movie probably could have been edited a bit and i think it, f- it felt a little long by the end but i i would agree with you that his best film and this happens to be where we, you and i differ it's also my favorite film of his is there will be blood i mean that that movie is uh, i don't use the word masterpiece very often but uh i there i say that i, I think it's fair to say right
1: Oh yeah, it's it's one of the best movies I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, it's um I, I, I if I ever come across it on cable and I kind of hope I don't because when I do then I know I'm committing myself for the next you know no matter where I come into it if it's an hour in or two hours in I'm probably gonna finish watching Daniel Plainview for the rest for the rest of the evening. So that reminds me of the one debate that you and I have always said we were gonna have and we never really did is is looking at the movie year of two thousand seven. Which is um, a pretty phenomenal year of film in general. But um, you and I have talked a little bit about what are, you know. Maybe my, one of my three favorite movies of that year. been I think some of this um, probably parallels with your list as well. But there were three films that year that I want to ask you to rank in terms of. And you could do it. You could do it the way you just did it, which is what What are the best films? Or what were your favorite of these three? But the, the three films in question are "No Country for Old Men," the Coen Brothers. That came out in 2007, as did There Will Be Blood, as did The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you my answers, but I'll let you go first. What? Give me give me those three in whatever order you
1: like. So There Will Be Blood is my favorite movie of the year, and I believe the best movie of the year. Um I thought that movie was perfect and I may like Daniel Day Lewis in that movie as much as any of his roles. He's so perfect in that movie. It's it's really amazing and it looks beautiful. Where maybe it's surprising is No Country for Me is third. Um I know what? it's third because wow. I love the assassination oh of Jesse James. And the here's here's the one thing that I always think is interesting when you think about movies versus albums. Movies are sometimes made for a single consumption. And it is quite possible the first time I saw No Country, I thought it was better than The Assassination of Jesse James. But I've seen The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford like a hundred times. And it's good every time. And I can't really sit down and watch No Country again. Like, I don't need to go and sit down and watch it again. So on some level, it's how do you rate the film? You know what I mean? In terms of... There will be Bloods, my favorite, regardless of the scale. But um, but I if if the assassination of Jesse James is on tonight and I flip on the TV, there's a good chance I'm making it all the way through to the end. And I think both Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck are perfect in that movie. I mean, I, I have to say one thing about Brad Pitt is I know he was, and he's still good looking, but he was really good looking when he was young. And that sort of skewed things. He had to like bust through that. But yep. he is a phenomenal actor, and he is great in that movie. Um, so so I, I, I once posted a while ago, years ago, that how did No Country beat There Will Be Blood for best film? Because there's just no way it's better. And uh, and I stand by that. And uh, so I'm probably unduly harsh on No Country because I was bitter about the fact that it was the wrong movie to win Best Picture. But, uh, but that's my order.
0: Well, listen, my, my head's about to explode. I, I, don't even, I don't even know what to say next. And we don't have enough time because this is a podcast and I got to be mindful of length. Um, I Listen, wow. I didn't think you liked Assassination of Jesse James as much as you did. So that's really interesting. And I'm, 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 I'm floored that you love it as much as I do. And I, I would also just one other thing I would add about that film. It's really brilliantly photographed. Oh yeah, beautiful. I mean, there's so many shots in that movie that I I watch it and I'll I'll just be like, I don't know how you shoot that. Like I I don't, you know, I'm not a cinematographer. I don't know. I don't know how you do that. But the 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 framing of that film is incredible. But I would also just give a nod to the Nick Cave score. Um, the the music score in that film is really impressive. Um, and I'm assuming that's probably one of the reasons why you like there will be blood as well. Is there's a radiohead reference there because it's Johnny Johnny Greenwood, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, actually, both scores. And, you know, I didn't mention when you asked who I've been listening to a lot lately, but I've been listening to a lot of Nick Cave. And part of the reason I've been listening to a lot of Nick Cave and P.J. Harvey is that I just finished Peaky Blinders, which is a great show. And the score to Peaky Blinders, all the music, is so phenomenally good. Um, and uh, I, I do love that score as well. Um Wow,
0: that's a, that's a show that I need to watch. It's on my list. I keep this rolling list of shows and movies on my phone that I, whenever someone says something, I, I add it. And the list is quite long. I was actually going through it the other day, and I was kind of taking some stuff out of it that I have now since watched. And Peaky Blinders is, is high on the list. It's, it's been there for a while. And a good buddy of mine, Dave Campanelli, who loves that show, he's, he's always told me you need...
1: And let me tell you what, Tom Hardy in that show, so good... He, I mean, the whole show is phenomenal. I loved it. But uh, Tom Hardy is so good. I watched that show right after Ozark, right after Breaking Bad. And I'm not saying it's better than Ozark or Breaking Bad, but I enjoyed it more than either.
0: Hmm. Jeff, I, I got to tell you, man, no country for old men. We, we're going to have to talk more about this. So I, I can't because it's probably one for me. And it's no. three, and it's three for you. There will be blood is a phenomenal experience. It is an amazing film. I love the fact that first twenty five minutes there's hardly any speaking in it, and it's just Daniel Plainview trying to trying to you know make a living, and he's digging, and he breaks his leg, and it, I mean you don't make movies like that that often that start off as daringly as that film does. But like no country is the, is the Coen Brothers at the top of their game in my opinion, and they've made some pretty phenomenal films throughout their career, but. That movie is, man, wow! We're gonna to have to talk more about this.
1: That, that is very interesting. By the way, The Big Lebowski is the Coen Brothers at the top of their game. But I'll, I'll. Uh, really, I'll say, you think that? The Big Lebowski is my is my favorite movie ever.
0: It's uh, it's, it's it's number one all time for Jeff Press.
1: Really, I, I would say it's certainly my favorite comedy. But I think it's my. I mean, it's hard. The Godfathers were really. Quite good, um, but uh, but I usually would tell you Lebowski is my favorite movie.
0: We, um, I think you probably know this just from my posts, but we are this past year. My brother and I and a buddy of ours did. Um, we we host a a virtual screenplay reading series. And I need, I need to get you into this by the way, because I think you would love it. Um, where we take a famous movie script and we we have a bunch of our buddies and and friends of ours that, that come in and we assign a role to everybody and we get on Zoom and we take two hours on a Thursday night and we all read the movie. Um, it started off with Glenn Gary Glenn Ross and it was kind of small and we love David Mamet. So we we did it. It was like we didn't. Re- it was kind of our our beta. We didn't really know what we were doing yet. And then we loved it. We had a phenomenal time. And then all of a sudden we're doing Pulp Fiction and we're doing Reservoir Dogs and all these others. Um, A year later, we're already coming up on our anniversary and we do them probably like every four or five weeks. But A, I need to get you into that. And I can't believe I haven't gotten into that because I think you will love it. But more importantly, we were, my brother and I were just talking last week that we need to do a Coen Brothers film because we haven't done one yet. So I think we were going to do Fargo just because we think the characters might be a lot of fun to play, yeah. but um, my buddy Nick, who's one of our our partners in this, he was he actually just told me the other day that we should do Lebowski. So
1: whoever draws Totoro is just psyched,
0: right? <laughs> Um, I can't believe I haven't asked you about that. I am really I'm going to make a note that um this fall we're going to get Jeff Press into our we call it Video Village by the way. I like and it. we're going to we're going to get you into Video Village and we'll uh we'll give you a nice juicy part and we'll give you time to prep and uh I guarantee you're going to want to do it again. Okay. So, it's a lot of fun. All right, Jeff, I'm going to I'm going to wrap. I want to let you go. Um but before I do, we re- we referenced this a little bit earlier, but you have an amazing fashion sense. I mean, some of the outfits that I've seen you wear, like I, I look at it. I'm like, "Wow, Jeff, man, he's bringing it today." He's what a great outfit. So my question is this: is, is part of that part of just what you do for a living, where you work in a, in a creative field with a lot of designers? And I know the the creative community tends tends to dress a little bit differently than the average person. Is it is it more about that, or when did you like get into fashion in a very real, meaningful way?
1: You know. It's interesting. So senior year of college, I started to really think a lot about um, a lot about fashion. Um, As previously stated, Z Stardust definitely was that album that was the most important thing. And and I'm I don't dress like David Bowie. But (laughs) what I what I took from that was this idea that you could create personas and kind of look and be how you want it to be. So senior year of college, I remember I was going to like vintage stores and buying, like, pajama tops and, like, bell-bottom uh, tuxedo pants. And um, I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. And I didn't have a whole lot of money, so this, this was where I went. Um, but uh, as time went on, I definitely got more and more into um, trying different looks and things. And for a while there, um, obviously I, I designed eyewear, but my wife and I designed a men's clothing collection, and it was all upholstery fabric three-piece suits. It's when the movie Velvet Goldmine came out and this whole idea of wearing these three-piece suits. And uh, about that time, I did Rag & Bone's first eyewear collection with them. And I remember Marcus, who's one of the founders and designers of Rag & Bone, being like, serious suit man. And I was like, that's right. We're standing here and, you know, I'm at a a runway show and everybody's, you know, dressed doing their thing. And I was like, I don't really want to look like them. I just kind of want to look like me. So uh we did a, a bunch of design, my wife and I, uh clothing. And then years later my style evolved because I got older and I wanted to be more comfortable. Those suits weren't actually that comfortable. So I got really into Japanese design. Um, and so I love a lot of Japanese designers. Joji Yamamoto is probably my favorite designer. Um, and I got really uh, close with and uh, friendly with the folks at Chrome Hearts. And I love Chrome Hearts. It's it's probably my favorite brand um, because there's a real pure way they look at what they do. And I love that. So um, interestingly, I happen to marry someone who's a personal stylist and really into fashion as well. And I, yeah. I had this friend right before I met Melissa, my wife, and she said, oh, you're going to meet someone that you're going to end up marrying and she's going to be buying you like Oxfords and khakis and you're going to totally change by the time you're, you know, you're 30 (laughs) and it did not go that way at all. So the first time uh, I met my father-in-law, I had orange spiked hair, a ruffled shirt on and these pants that had one stripe. And I swear he put his hand out and he was like, what the hell is going on here? And I was like, that's perfect. So, uh, so I just got into it, and uh, and she and I love doing it. And now my daughter is actually really into it too. She goes to sewing camp sometimes, and um, you know, we just uh, we like the whole idea of uh, of dressing up and uh, and uh, kind of having fun with it.
0: Well, look, I, I whenever I see it, I'm just like, wow. I mean, and then I always think about Jeff's closet, and I'm like, where does he get, where where does all the stuff get stored? Like, because you have, I mean, you're 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 the only friend I have that's that dresses the way you do. Like, and I, I mean that in a compliment. Like, that is a it's a phenomenal wardrobe that you've got. And I don't even know, like, do you have it all in your place? Do you like have Wait, it, some of it in storage?
1: You want to know what's funny? It's, it's we have a lot of closets for a small space. We live in Manhattan, and I was I was saying um to a friend we just bought uh the apartment next door and we're gonna make our place bigger and so we were meeting with an architect and i'm like yeah we need more closet space he's like you have huge amounts of closet space i'm like we have huge amounts of stuff and yeah, i don't actually more. like it to be out so we uh we probably uh, have the percentage wrong of how much floor space and how much closet space you're supposed to have in a new york city apartment but what can you do
0: Great, great career for you, man. I'm like, I've been watching from afar and just in what you do. And I, I'm knowing when I knew you from way back when, it's been really impressive to watch, um, what you've, what you did. And not that that matters or anything, but it's just, uh, you seem like you're in a place where you just love what you do for a living. And I I love that about people. And that's certainly something that I've always tried to kind of instill in my own career. So, um, very impressive to watch.
1: You get lucky and, uh, get opportunities and I got lucky and got some opportunities to really get into something. And uh, that's been really cool. So uh, yeah. I feel fortunate with that. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. I was in I was in Cleveland and the guy, Gary uh, Kelly, who I worked for right after at Sony, he's now, he's the chief revenue officer at Interscope Records. He's like a, a big deal in the music industry. And he's like, he's like, I didn't see this at all for you, man, but I love how much you love it. And I always <laughs> say, I'm like, that's what it's about. You know, if you're doing something you're really enjoying doing... uh, I got plenty of friends who make plenty of money doing stuff that does not make them happy at all. And I got to say, obviously, everything's a choice, but uh, that doesn't appeal to me at all. So I like Um, the idea um, that you can be creative and and do fun stuff. I mean, and I'd say the same to you. I mean, look, um, all the interesting uh, things that you work on, um, that's awesome. I mean, the reality is... uh, during the day, we have choices to make, and you want to do something that you can really sink your teeth into.
0: Listen, this was a blast. It was so great to see you. I really appreciate you um, jumping on and, and talking a little bit more about what you do, and, and I've learned a lot more about what you do uh, for a living just by sitting with you for the last hour and a half. So I, I really appreciate your time, and um, sincerely, I hope that I can spend some time with you when I come to New York. I am going to be up there a lot over the next several months just coming in and out for trips, and um, I don't need glasses. I just want to hang out with you and we'll drink some scotch and we'll, we'll talk a that's little bit good. more about um, no country for old men because that conversation is not over. So because um, I, I can't believe that's number three for you. I really can't.
1: Now so. I feel like I have to see it again. So maybe I'll have to do that before I uh, before I see you next. But uh, I look forward to it.
0: No, good. Well, listen, thanks again, Jeff. Everybody, thanks for listening. I've been, uh, I kind of took the summer off. Um, I'm coming back with a bunch of new episodes this fall. So I appreciate everybody's patience. I'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.